And this is obviously, it's probably the most famous psalm. And I was thinking about it uh, when I was looking at the reading plan this week. And my first thought was, well, obviously I can't can't do Psalm 23. That's just like been done so many times. And Robbie asked me, he said, well, have you ever actually preached Psalm 23? I thought, no, I don't think I have. I think I uh, often avoid it because you're like, well, everybody knows Psalm 23, but I've never actually, I don't think dug into it and, and preached through it. And so that's what we're going to do today. And so my hope is that this will be an encouragement to you and kind of so you know where I'm going. Um, this is this is a psalm that has been referred to as the um, the sweetest psalm, the most beautiful flower. Augustine once said that the um, Psalm 119 is like a tree of life springing up in, in heaven. And um, another theologian then said, well, if that's the case, then Psalm 23 is the most beautiful, wonderful flower that is growing up around it. And so it is an encouraging psalm that defines our relationship with our God, what we receive in that relationship, and when we can count on that, the, the sureness of the, that what we receive from him, and then all of that that leads to rejoicing. So let's pray together as we look at this um, most famous of Psalms. Lord, help us this morning. Help us to see with fresh eyes things that we have known uh, for thousands of years. Your people have known, God, that you are our shepherd, that you love us and you care for us. But Lord, would you be so kind as to meet us here in this place, wherever, however we got here, but that these truths would not be things that we would just dismiss in our head and say, yes, I know, I know that, but that we would examine that, God, you would examine our hearts and unroot any, any semblance of, of unbelief that is in there. Unbelief that would cause us to not put our hope in you and not put our trust in you and to chase after other things. I pray that you would do this for the sake of your name. Amen. I would say as we get started, and I'm just going to, what I'm going to do is just to walk through this and look at this relationship we have with God and, and what we receive and, and the circumstances that these things are true in and what that should produce in us. As, as I do that, I just want to encourage you if, you, if you're not familiar with Psalm 23, um, I would encourage you to get really familiar with it. This is one that would have been quoted over and over and over again and memorized. And so it's one of the first passages of scripture that I actually, that I memorized and, and it, has, it has served me in so many um, instances to be able to just have that and to know it and to meditate on these incredible uh, truths in here. So it starts out with this very famous line, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And so first David is kind of defining this, this relationship between he and God. Everyone, like I said, knew this psalm. God was the shepherd of Israel. He had led them out of Egypt. He had led them into the promised land. He had protected them among the nations. And this is obviously, you know, we much has been made of the fact that we don't have a lot of shepherds now. I don't think if we had people raise their hands, like who would say that, that that's your vocation. But at this time, like that was a major vocation. Everybody would have understood that and known the imagery. And so people would have known this idea, but God is our shepherd. God is our shepherd. God is our shepherd, which is why it's such a big deal. In, in John 10, Jesus says this. He says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. 
He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, I lay down my life for the sheep. So when Jesus makes that statement, like when he makes all of his other I am statements, he's saying a very profound thing. He is letting the people know who are hearing, I am God. I am the one that you have been worshiping. I am in the flesh before you. And you just got to imagine how mind-boggling that would have been for people. And as he does with everything about God, when he makes that statement, I have to believe that many people are picturing Psalm 23 and other passages. And what Jesus is doing is he's making these things that we've known about God through generations, and he's making them tangible. He's putting flesh on them. See, the people of Israel knew Psalm 23 and knew that that was who God is. But in Jesus, they're seeing in the flesh what it actually looks like. So this relationship that David is defining here of us as the sheep and and God as a shepherd is manifested and flesh is put on it in the life of Jesus. And we have to make sure we understand something here. If the Lord is our shepherd, then that makes us the sheep, right? And, and the, the common thing that we know about sheep is that sheep are dumb. Like this is, this is not a very flattering picture. This is, I'm sure you've met, heard this mentioned before, but um, like when they, when they made the TV show Lassie, remember the TV show Lassie? Okay. I got news for you. Of all the animals that they could have chosen, sheep did not make the list of who's going to play Lassie, Right. Like, no sheep is ever going and getting, you'll hear stories of, like, brilliant dog, like, here's this story, and, like, knew, sensed danger, and went and barked, and woke up his owners, and got them out before the fire, or saw someone was trapped, and ran and got help. You see those stories. Have you ever seen one of those about a sheep? No. You You had Lassie, you had Mr. Ed, you have Wilbur, you have all these things. No sheep. Because sheep are dumb. Because they don't know what they're doing. They just follow In fact, even in our culture, we talk about like, ah, they're just a bunch of sheep. They just like kind of follow everybody around. And what we're supposed to say looking at scripture is yes. Yes, we are. And that is the relationship we have with our Lord. Jesus and I aren't teammates. He's not my advisor so that I can make decisions about my life. We're not like on this kind of equal plane or whatever. Like he is my Lord. And my life is his And David is saying, like, this is a beautiful thing. This is a wonderful thing. Because he is our shepherd. And because he's my shepherd, I shall not want, he says. And what he's meaning in this is I'll be completely satisfied and content in him. Everything that I want, everything that I need is fulfilled in him. He takes care of my every need and my every desire. And we know that contentment is fleeting in our world. In In the world, contentment is really an illusion. Because most times we're either chasing something that we think will finally satisfy us or we're settling for something far less than what we were made for. But the world can't ever find the balance between that because you can never be fully satisfied. But what David is saying in this is that in God, you can be. Paul knew this. That's why in Philippians 4, he he talks about the secret. He's learned the secret of this. He says, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Paul's telling the Philippians, you want to know the secret of being content? It's Christ. It's the good shepherd. Abide in him. Walk with him. 
And this is how he does it. He makes me lie down in green pastures. This, this imagery of, of making you lie down in green pastures, like obviously it's not, it's not a big jump to say for sheep, green pastures are delicious. Okay? They're satisfying. You, didn't, you wouldn't think it's a good shepherd that would lead his, his sheep out into this gravel lot right here. But now as sheep, sheep will kind of wander and kind of get distracted and kind of go over there. But the shepherd is going to constantly be like, no, 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 here, lie down here. This is what will satisfy you. This is what will fill you. And that's what our shepherd offers us. He offers us food that will satisfy and will fill us. This, this imagery of food, of, of the word of God being bread and, and the, doing the will of the Father is food. And Jesus, when you get to, says he is the bread of life. This, this imagery is so powerful, I think, because it demonstrates our depravity in such a really clear way. And here's what I mean. I think, I think every kid has asked at some point some version of this question. If vegetables are so good for me, why don't why didn't God make them taste like ice cream? Okay? Anybody got a question like that? Like, well, if this is if this is what I'm supposed to do and this is supposed to be so good, then why does it not taste as good as this thing over here that you say is bad for me? And we know that. We never outgrow that, right? Like when you go to a fast food restaurant, how many of you, when you go to a fast food restaurant, look at the menu and think, I know what I should probably get, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get this other thing. This, I'm going to get the cheeseburger and fries. How many of you would honestly admit that like, that's, that's your thing when you go? Okay. Glad we have a few honest people. The rest of you are going to talk about lying later. We'll deal with that. But no, you, you do that. You go there and you say, I know, I know this is what's going to be better for me, but, I, but I'm going to get this. Like, why do you do that? Why do we do that? Do you think that, that that cheeseburger and fries are actually healthier than the salad? Of course not. Do you think it's better for you in the long run? Of course not. I mean, how many times have you eaten something and said or thought, I know I'm going to regret this later, right? Well, what that proves to us is what we know in our minds and what is obvious to everyone, ourselves and everyone else around us, doesn't determine our actions. The reason we do that is because we believe that thing will be more satisfying because our taste buds betray us. We desire, our taste makes us desire things that are actually harmful to us. Kind of shoots the whole Darwinism argument just like right, right out of the gate for humans. Like most animals are built in with a desire and a taste for the food that will help them survive. Like if you have a lion who does, thinks meat is gross, he's not going to survive and reproduce. So in the animal kingdom, that's the way it works. Why with humans is it the opposite? Well, we were designed that way, but our tastes are broken. We no longer taste and have a taste for the things that actually satisfy us and fill us. We are like a lion who thinks that meat is gross. And we think other things will satisfy us, even temporarily give us a little fill up, a little high. We talk about this all the time, a relationship, a new purchase, a new job. We think more, more wisdom that will satisfy us with political bloggers and, and YouTubers and news stations. Surely those things will fill me up. Surely those things will satisfy me and help me make sense of the world and help me not chase these other things. And then I'll finally be content. But we know that that is not the case. And our shepherd is kind and he makes us lie down in green pastures. And he fills us. 
And what Jesus makes clear is it's not just this bread. Remember, there were, um, when, he feeds the fi- when he feeds the multitudes in John 6, and after he feeds the multitudes, he goes across to the other end of the sea, and the, the multitudes come around and they find him. And they said, Jesus, where did you go? We were looking for you. And Jesus says to them, look, you were looking for me because you wanted bread. And then he goes on and says, but I'm the bread of life. If you take part in me, you'll never go hungry. He's saying, I'm something better. Our appetites, because they are broken by sin, pursue junk food. But our shepherd makes us lie down in green pastures. He makes us lie down in them. Like not just like, hey, here's a, he doesn't just, you know, like we're watching the Olympics and the marathoners and the people that are running, you know, they like throw like the cups of water at them as they're running by and they grab it and they just kind of show, throw the water on them. My kids think that's hilarious because they like, why don't they drink it? They just dump it on their heads and like they missed, but they're, I think it's intentional. Um, I hope, but the thing is that as they're doing that, like we, we kind of get a picture of like, okay, God, you're going to feed me. So I'm just going to, I'm just going to go flying by. Like, while I'm doing all the things I got to do in my life and I'm running around, like I got to grab a meal. Like I need some kind of take you know, fast food, give me some fast food um, feedings. And so we turn to things like little tiny devotions and little tiny, just like, okay, just, I just need a little bit. Just, I just, just need to get something really quick and get it in my system so I can go like a little protein bar. But, but our shepherd says, no, you got to lie down. And we look at that and we say, well, I don't want to do that because that's a waste of time. And we think it's a waste of time because our culture values busy so much. We talk about this all the time. We just run ourselves ragged, but in total circles. We're like dogs chasing our tails, wearing ourselves out for no reason, working long hours to buy things that we don't need, and then spending even more time maintaining those things that we don't need. We've talked about before, like if, our, if the pioneers from like 200 years ago could come and have a conversation with us right now and listen to us be like, oh, I'm so busy, they would punch us, right? They're like, oh, you're busy. I'm sorry, you're doing what? Well, I got, I, got, I got a softball game to go to, and then I got to run over here, and then we got to get our kids over to this thing, and then I got a, and then I got a doctor's appointment this afternoon, and then you got to wait forever there, and then I got, to, you know, I got to do all these different things. And they're like, oh, that's interesting. I spent 14 hours today trying to make sure my kids don't die by feeding them. That's how long it took me to prepare a meal today. It doesn't make sense. It's not the actual things that are going on. It's our hearts that are chaotic and busy. And so God says, lie down. Like we have everything at our fingertips that we could possibly want. And yet we are the most anxious and stress-ridden and depressed and lonely generation that the world has ever known. It's because we don't actually know what rest is. We don't know what peace is. We think we do. But whenever we think that, like how many of you have ever gone on vacation and come back needing rest? Right? Like how many of you have taken a break at work and decided to pull out your phone and scroll through social media and you get to the end of your break and you feel even more tired than you did when you started your break? It's because we don't know. But Jesus says, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. He makes you lie down. He leads you beside quiet waters. He is your rest. He is your peace. He calms every storm and brings peace to our hearts. In fact, Paul says in Ephesians 2 that he himself is our peace. He doesn't just bring us peace. He himself is our peace. And that's what he offers you as our shepherd. And he offers you this nourishment, this this 
green pasture. He offers it through his word and through his church and through his people and through prayer. And whenever I say something like that, I know what I, I know the response because it's my response too. It's like, yeah, I know that. But just like going into the fast food restaurant, I know what is healthier. I know what's going to make me feel better. I know what's actually going to satisfy me. But I keep being drawn to this. And if you think about how often we talk about that, like I, I know that I should be more in the word. I know I should pray more. I know I should be involved in, in the fellowship of the believers more. But we say, but I, I just don't have time. We're just so busy. And our nature is to feel guilty about saying that. And so we followed up with statements like, I know I should. That's a statement of guilt. Ah, I know I should do that. That's a better thing. I would say instead of feeling guilty, we should feel foolish. We need to remember, this is a prime example of how we are dumb sheep. We should feel foolish because what we're actually saying is, God, I am too hungry to eat real food. I'm just starving. And I'm just, too, I'm just too hungry to eat real food. I am too exhausted to lay down and actually have rest. My life is too chaotic to receive peace from you. I just don't have time to receive peace. I'm just too chaotic. I don't have time to be led by you, Lord, because I'm, just, I'm too busy wandering around aimlessly. It's silliness. Imagine coming upon a lost hiker who says they don't have time to read a map. I don't have time for that. I got to get out of these woods. I don't have time to look at a compass and read a map. Or dying of thirst. And say, I don't, I, I'm dying here. I don't have time to take a drink of that water. That is who we are. But our Lord offers us. He says, lie down in green pastures. Spend time with me. Slow down. Let me lead you beside quiet waters. And in verse 3, he says, he restores my soul. While he's making me lay down there, he restores my soul. I love what Charles Spurgeon says about this verse. He says, when the soul grows sorrowful, he revives it. When it is sinful, he sanctifies it. When it is weak, he strengthens it. When your heart is heavy with sorrow, what do you do? Do you run off into gravel lots, trying to escape it through, through alcohol or distract yourself through hobbies? He, he'll restore you from the pit of despair. He'll make you lay down in green pastures and he will restore your soul. When you're given over to sin, what do you do? Do you run and hide from him in shame? Do you hide in, in self-justification? Don't. He makes you lie down and he restores your soul. He redeems you from the pit. When you're weak and you're discouraged and you don't know if you can take another step in the road that God has given you to walk, what do you do? Do you just lay down and give up and just say, well, forget it. I can't, I can't do any of this. Do you figure like, why does it matter? Why, why bother? Lie down in green pastures. He will restore your soul. He lifts up your weary head. He is the resurrection and the life. Be restored by him. I, I recently had a conversation with someone and it's from a different town. Every time I use a sermon illustration about some conversation I have, I have people trying to guess who it is. Let me just tell you right now, this is a person from far away from here. But I had a conversation. He, he was wearing a, a Christian t-shirt. And I, I asked him about it. And I asked about his story. 
And he had an incredible story of how he had lived a, a life that was just destroyed by addictions and, and bad choices and also things that had happened to him. And he talked about how Jesus delivered him. And I said, what does that mean? What does that look like? How does it? And he said this. He goes, well, one of the things is he said, well, I remember when I was a kid, when I was a kid, I used to really care about people. I used to be a compassionate kid. I, would, I was a peacemaker. I'd always, if my friends were arguing, I'd try to make peace among them. I just, that was, that was how I was wired. And he said, during these last like 20 years that I've been gripped by all these other things, I lost that. I lost it for a long time. I lost that heart. And he said, the Lord gave me back my heart. And I just love that imagery of him restoring it. This thing that was there, that he was created in God's image. You see like what's happening there? He's created in God's image. But because of his desires and appetites for other things, he was led astray. And that hardened him. It hardened his heart and it, and it was killing it and destroying it. And when he comes back to God, what he finds from his Lord is not a, a lecture of a long time of just being like, see, look at all the things that happened to you. And that was all because of these bad decisions. Instead, Jesus gives him his heart back and he brings to life that which was dead. He restores your soul. And he leads me in paths of righteousness he gives us purpose and meaning and direction in our life. He, he leads me. It's not the law that leads David here. It's not morality that leads David. It's not his conscience. It's God. He's led by him. In John 14, Thomas says to Jesus, when Jesus is talking about the kingdom and about heaven, Thomas says, Lord, we don't know where you are going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Our Jesus has lived the life that we were called to but couldn't live. And through our surrender to him, we take on his life. His life becomes ours and ours becomes his. And he leads me. He doesn't just say, hey, I've forgiven you of all your sins. I've shown you how to live. Now I'm going to be hanging out in heaven. Good luck. He leads you in the path of righteousness. He doesn't give you the principles and the tools to know how to walk a righteous road. He leads you on the righteous road. If you ever find yourself thinking, I'm on the road of righteousness, but you look around and you don't see Jesus, that's a problem. The world is littered with people throughout history who have tried to create their own roads of righteousness. The road of righteousness is the one where our shepherd is leading us. And he does it all for his namesake. He leads me in the path of his righteousness for his namesake. It is all for his glory. Church, it's not about you. It's not about which pasture you're lying in. You know, it's, it's not the situation where we say, okay, but God loved this pasture. It's pretty nice, but I kind of liked it when we were over there in that field. It felt a little more spread out width-wise. It felt like I just kind of liked that. Or God, I'd really love, you know, I love quiet waters, totally value quiet waters, but, you know, I like a little adventure. So maybe a few rapids thrown in there, that would be really great. Maybe if my waters could have like trout or sturgeon or whatever it is you people fish for that I don't understand, but I do like to eat. So if you want to drop any off, you're welcome to. It's not about you. 
It's not about like which pasture. Like God knows. He's your shepherd. He loves you. He makes you lie down in these green pastures. And that is a good thing that he does that. He makes it about him. The most loving thing God can do is glorify his own name and not let us take any of the credit because we aren't able to save anybody. That's why like as we're serving in the community and people are saying wonderful things about our church, that is, that is encouraging. But I always want to make them understand this is not about faith church. It is about Jesus. So if you see anything good in us as we volunteer in, in the schools or we volunteer with CASA or we help at the homeless shelter or we do any of these other things, I want them to say, well, that's because of Jesus. Let the name of Faith Church just decrease and let the name of Jesus increase. Because he is the light of the world. He is the one that can deliver us from darkness. He blesses us so that through us he can bless all people. And then he says, he says something interesting. So verses four and five, as we go in that, I think that these are just kind of a reprise of what was said. But it's in this context. He gives a context, like when is this true? And David's saying all these incredible things about who God is. And you can imagine somebody listening to that and saying, that's, that's awesome, David. I, I think that's great. But you're painting this picture of this very quiet, peaceful, serene life. And that's not what my life looks like. And David anticipates that. And he says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Like even then, David says, if you're going to need picture of this peaceful picture, this beautiful picture of lying down in green pastures beside quiet waters, David's saying all of that is true even when I'm walking through the valley of the shadow of death. Even when death is at my door and it is hovering over me so much that it casts over my entire life, which is what David is facing in this, saying, even then, I will fear no evil. Why? Because you're my shepherd and you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. It's his presence that brings comfort. It's not walking out of the valley. You can imagine if David's walking through this valley and darkness and death are just hanging over it. Imagine if the shepherd says, hey, David, you can get out of this. Just walk right up that path right there and you'll get out of this valley. But I'm on this road. He would say like Moses, like, God, if you're not going with us, we can't go. It's with you. You're the reason why I don't fear. It's not this. It's not the taking away of this shadow of death. It is you. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. What's he saying that? He's saying, God, you, it's the fact that you're in charge. It's the fact that you are my shepherd. Your rod and your staff, which are symbols of your rule in my life, your rule in the world. That's what brings me comfort. Whatever comes from your hand is good. Paul says in Romans 8, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. That's the comfort that comes even though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death. He goes on in Romans 8, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid even though these things come in my life. I'm not afraid as I walk through cancer. I'm not afraid as I walk through addiction. I'm not afraid as I watch people around me destroy their own lives and it breaks my heart. I'm not, a, I'm not afraid. I'm sad. I grieve. 
but I'm not afraid because he is my shepherd. And he makes me lie down in green pastures. And he leads me beside quiet waters. And he restores my soul. And he leads me on the path of his righteousness, all for his namesake. Notice David doesn't say, though I am destroyed by death, I know it won't be in vain. I know God will somehow use it. He says, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Church, death has only got a shadow over you. It's just a shadow. It may feel like darkness is coming in all around you, but the light of the world has come and the darkness will not overcome it. It may feel like death is at your doorstep, and here on earth it may even be, but it cannot come in fully. Not for those who are in Christ, not for those who are the sheep of the great shepherd. It is a shadow because the Lord Jesus went to the cross and defeated death. That's why we don't fear. Because you're with me. You feed me food that will never leave me hungry. You quiet all the storms around me and give me peace. You give me back my heart. You lead me down the path of righteousness. And those things are so consuming that all fear has left me. And verse 5 is a continuation of that. He says, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. It may not seem like, well, why, how is that connected to this? It's so connected. He's saying like, this, this is what you do. You, I don't fear anything, even though I walk through this valley. In fact, you prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. What in the world does that mean? Well, ask yourself, how often do you prepare your table for dinner? Really prepare it. How often do you set up like a centerpiece and place settings? We basically do that for special occasions, right? Like Thanksgiving, Christmas dinner, Maybe one where you're going to have the whole family together. But we don't do it often because our lives are so rushed. We don't have time. When David is saying he prepares a table, preparing a table is something that takes time. God's not in a rush. Why is that significant? Because the enemies are standing right there. Like those who would seek to destroy him are right here. And if there was ever a time to grab a protein bar and just go for it, it would be right there because there are guys right here who want to destroy me. And what does God do? He prepares a table. He says, sit down, eat. But God, there's enemies right there. Like they're at the doorstep. They are ready to destroy everything we believe in. I got it. I'm setting a table. Sit down. Eat. Listen, I'm aware that there are attacks on Christianity, and there have been points where people have said, like, I don't feel like you understand what's going on in the world, like all these things that are happening. I mean, look, I'm not going to say I fully understand that. I'm, I'm a human being. My, my knowledge is certainly reaches a limit. But I will tell you this. I am aware that there are great attacks on Christianity both overt and hidden, from outside, but mostly from within. But here's the thing. We don't panic. We don't change course because our Lord is not in a panic. He sets a table before us. He says, I know, I know, I know that's going on. Sit down, eat. He makes us lie down in green pastures. He comforts us with his rod and his staff. There is no panic. You anoint my head with oil. And my cup, it overflows. 
you bless me lavishly, overflowing my cup. As you sit me down, you don't just meet my needs. You extravagantly bless us beyond our wildest imaginations. God is not stingy with his blessing. He does not hold back. Consider in your life how he has blessed you, how he has been merciful for you. Does, that, does he seem stingy to you? Does he seem like he's holding back something that you really would want? Or does it seem like he just gives blessing upon blessing upon blessing? That's what he does. And that's what David is rejoicing in. And so it's no wonder that David, as he's talking about this, this is what my shepherd is. You are my shepherd. I am a sheep. I am following you. You lead me. You make me lie down in green pastures. You lead me beside quiet waters. You restore my soul. Even when death is at my doorstep, even when enemies surround me, you do all of this. You bring peace to my heart. You bring meaning to my life. You give me my heart back. You do all of this. And so then, of course, he's going to say in verse 6, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. You can hear the joy. And it's like, if this is what you do for me, you do all of this in the midst of all the circumstances around me. This is what I receive as you are my shepherd. This surely nothing can touch me. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. And I don't even have to worry about it because all of my days and I will dwell in your house forever. I will praise your name forever. This is what he offers. If you would be his sheep and if you're here right now and you're saying, I don't know what that means. I have never committed my life in that way. I've never said, okay, God, you are the shepherd. You gave up. You laid down your life. You were the good shepherd who laid down your life for the sheep. You gave yourself up for me. I now die to myself and I want to be risen with you. If that's you this morning, then just commit yourself to that. Surrender to him. Or maybe you knew that at once. Maybe you're like that guy that I talked about that, that he said, I used to know God and I used to feel like I, I, I knew who he was and I, and, and I had this heart and then I lost it but you want it back. He will restore your soul. And I encourage everyone, spend time this week in this psalm. Memorize it. Let it seep into your heart. Call upon it. And be able to stand with David and say, you are my shepherd. I shall not want. And he, can, he secures that. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. And that's how we can claim all of these promises. And so we remember that as we take communion together. That the good shepherd didn't just leave us alone. He leads us. And he leads us in the way everlasting. And he does that when he gathers his disciples together in the Last Supper. And he's warning them. He has warned them. You imagine him preparing them for this thing that they can't possibly imagine what's about to happen in the next 24 hours. And the way that he prepares them is not by giving them strategies or by giving them law in order to behave, by telling them what they should do when this happens or this happens. How he strengthens them is he shows them why they can be confident that everything he said remains true. He takes the bread and he breaks it. And he says, this is my body broken for you. Take and eat and do this in remembrance of me.
then he takes the cup and says things that they could not fully understand until they would see it with their own eyes. And he would say, this, this is my blood shed for the forgiveness of sins to seal a new covenant. Take and drink and do this in remembrance of me. Our Heavenly Father, you are our shepherd. We shall not want for anything. You satisfy us completely. You make us lie down and slow down and lie down in green pastures, rich green pastures of your word and of our prayer with you and in fellowship with one another. You make us slow down and lie down. You lead us beside quiet waters. Lord, you restore our soul. Give us our hearts back. Restore everything within us. Restore our souls. Lead us in the path of righteousness, not for self-righteousness, not for self-glorification, but for the sake of your name. We would live in a way that makes people wonder who it is that we serve and who you are, God. For your name alone be the glory. And even though, God, we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, and God, as I pray this, I know there are people in this field who are very much walking this road. God, even then, you, we will not fear anything. We will fear any evil, any darkness, because you are with us. Your rod and your staff, your rule over us, it brings us comfort. You are the light of the world, and the darkness cannot overcome it. You set a table before us in the presence of our enemies. Any, anyone that would want to destroy us or destroy the faith or to destroy the name of Jesus, you, you won't have it. You will preserve it. We are called to follow you. you. You prepare a table for us. You say, sit and eat. There is time. God, surely as you anoint our head with oil and as our cup overflows and you give us blessing upon blessing upon blessing, not because we deserved it, but because you are good and you are holy and you are God. Surely goodness and mercy will follow us all the days of our lives. And in Christ, we will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Amen.